this morning, we're going to pick back up where we left off, uh, working through our series on the seven mysteries that Paul identifies in the New Testament. And we're on the fourth one we're going to do. They're in no particular order, uh, but we're on the mystery of the bridal relationship, marriage. So um, that's for you, uh, Princess Bride fans. Um, and uh, you may be going into this thinking, yes, I've read this, we're the bride of Christ, yada, yada. I don't like being a bride. I'm a, I'm a big man. But uh, okay, uh, there's a lot more to this maybe than you realize, so I want to encourage you, you know, just stay with me, uh, because this seems like it's a really important topic to Jesus, and uh, there's a mindset that we need to develop that I honestly believe is critical to the church in the last days. Uh, I think we've missed uh, the depth of this mindset, so we'll get to that towards the end, uh, that's called a cliffhanger. That's what they do in shows, so you'll watch the next show. Uh, so that's so you'll stay here to the entire end of the sermon. Um, so in the beginning, uh, I want to talk about the Old Testament. There are some hints and some foreshadows of this bridal relationship in the Old Testament. And so I want to look at those just so you see that God was thinking about this for a long time, even though it was still kind of a mystery that we didn't fully understand until the New Testament. But we see it, first of all, in Isaiah 62, verse 5, where God's speaking through Isaiah, and understand the context here is he's specifically talking about Jerusalem. And he says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So he picks up this bridal language, and, he, and he's basically saying, Jerusalem, that's how into you I am. Now, I don't know if any of you do this. When I go to weddings, uh, one of the fun things to do, and sometimes I'm standing up here in a wedding, so it's real easy to do, is, you know, when the doors open and the bride steps in and everybody stands up and goes, oh, you know, and all that stuff, uh, I like to look at the groom and the look on his face. Any of us ever do that? And it's pretty cool, isn't it? So understand what this verse is saying. Jesus is saying... God is saying, hey, Jerusalem, you know that look on the bridegroom's face when he first sees the bride? He goes, that's how I feel every time I look at you. You get what's going on there. So as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And again, the context is Jerusalem. And what's really interesting is the very next two verses, you'll be hearing a lot about this coming up in the next few weeks, uh, Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7, where he says, So I've set watchmen on the wall day and night. Give me no rest until I make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now take that with the bridal verse. And he's saying, So keep praying, keep bothering me, give me no rest until I make Jerusalem this beautiful bride that I'm longing for, that I'm looking at. You see the picture. And so this has been in his heart for a long time. It was in his heart, I believe, in Matthew 23, where Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I longed to gather you under my wings like a, like a hen does her chicks. 
but you are not willing. He's expressing this longing to take care of, to have this bridal love relationship. You guys get that? So he goes on, uh, Jeremiah 2, 2. Jeremiah also, Isaiah prophesied uh, as Israel was getting ready to go into captivity. Jeremiah prophesied as Jerusalem was getting ready to go into captivity. And he says, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Again, let's understand what he's saying. He's saying, Jerusalem, I remember. You know that time I took you out of Israel or out of Egypt with signs and wonders, and I led you into the wilderness, and we were building a relationship, and you were learning to love me. You may have thought that was just you guys getting. Uh, you know, brought to the promised land. He goes, but to me, that was a betrothal. That was me dating you. We were getting married. You understand the language here? And so he's going, uh, I remember the kindness of your youth when you were falling in love with me. And that was a betrothal. And that leads us to Hosea. Now, Hosea is interesting. Hosea prophesied the same time as Isaiah uh, when Israel was uh, heading into captivity. And let me set it up a little bit because, uh, again, it's this bridal language. In Hosea, uh, talk about your prophetic acts. Um, God tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute, right? And so he does. He marries Gomer. And he says, here's the scenario, Hosea. In this metaphor, uh, you're me and the prostitute is Israel. Because Israel's been unfaithful to me, Israel has gone after other gods. He's not just saying uh, Israel hasn't followed the rules. He's saying Israel has committed adultery. I wanted to marry her, but she keeps wanting to have affection with other gods and not me. Right? So that's what, he's, that's what the whole book of Isaiah is about. And uh, he does this thing. Uh, we'll get back to this in a minute. But he does this thing where uh, he marries Gomer, and then Gomer goes off and plays a harlot. And he has to go back and get Gomer. And it's just a picture of his relationship with Israel, right? And Gomer has three kids, uh, a boy and two girls. And the, the, the girl, the first girl, he names, uh, I think it's Loami, no mercy, because I'm not going to have mercy on you anymore. Remember, Israel's getting ready to go into captivity. And the second girl he names, literally, God tells him to name uh, her, you are not my God. So I'm not going to be your God anymore. So he's, he's, there's this separation that happens, Right? Here's the wild thing. He can only go one more verse. You can read this in chapter 1. He says, no mercy, not my God. The very next verse, he goes, ah, I can't take this. In the place where it was said, you are not my people, it will be said, you are my people. And he begins to talk about the redemption of them. And he only gets one verse away from you are not my people before he starts to talk about it. And then it goes into chapter 2. And I want to read some selective verses out of uh, chapter 2. So you get, again, the bridal language that he's talking about. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. So what's he doing? He's returning to that relationship. He goes, I'm going to take her into the wilderness again. I'm going to speak comfort to her. I'm going to allure Israel 
and draw her back to me. Why? Um, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Do you understand the difference? Jesus uh, is making, or God's making a difference here. Rachel, quit calling me master a long time ago. <laughs> Our relationship changed. Right? You will no longer call me my master. If you look at the Old Testament, that's what the relationship looks like. He says, you're going to call me my husband. There's a difference. Uh, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. He begins to describe the marriage relationship he's going to have with Israel. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So you get this language. Now, here's the interesting thing. We know that he's talking to Israel about the harlotry of their idolatry, going after other gods. And we also know that this marriage, this time when they will call him husband, is fulfilled in the New Testament. It's the mystery we're getting ready to talk about in the New Testament. The reason we know that is because Peter, in 1 Peter 2, uses this exact same language when he says, when he talks about how it's being, uh, now remember, Peter is writing uh, to the dispersed Jews. He's writing to Israel, right? And he says, um, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, his own special people who were not a people, but now you're the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. He's directly quoting Hosea. It's as if Peter's saying, you know that promise that, that God's going to marry you? This is that. The New Testament is that. That way has been made open. And of course, we see the book of Song of Solomon, uh, which, you know, we don't let our youth read till they're 18. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, Song of Solomon is a metaphor about this bridal love relationship, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. As we move into the New Testament and we talk about the mystery, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, what's really different about this? And here's, in my opinion, uh, what the difference is. I think most of uh, the Jews in, uh, you know, before Jesus came in the Old Testament would have gotten the metaphor. Yeah, it's a metaphor. He loves us like that much, right? But in the New Testament, it's not a metaphor. It's literal. Think about that. He's not just saying, I love you like a husband loves a wife. I'm excited about you like a bridegroom is excited about a bride. He's saying, we're really going to be married. We're literally going to be married. We're literally going to be married. And we're going to talk about this. So this is huge. And also, it's not just Israel. It's all of us. It's those who have been grafted into Israel as well, or grafted into the promises. You understand? And so in the New Testament, we see that the mystery is that he actually marries us, and it's all of us. It's not just Israel. It still is Israel, but we'll get to that later. Now, we see this most clearly in Ephesians 5. Uh, anybody that's ever been to a wedding, uh, they always read Ephesians 5, right? Because those are the instructions. Uh, you could find the same instructions sort of in Peter. Uh, but those are, they're really good instructions. Husband, love your wife. Uh, wife, honor your husband. Uh, it's good stuff. If you do that, you'll have a good marriage. Now, 
But here's the thing we have to see. Uh, Paul is kind of talking about marriage, but he's mostly not. He's mostly talking about our marriage to Jesus. He says this in verse 32. I'm going to start again. We'll work our way back. In Ephesians 5, 32, Paul says, this is a great mystery. We'll talk about what this is in a second. But I'm not talking about marriage, really. He says, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. You understand? He's going, this is a great mystery. I'm talking about a marriage here. I'm talking about a husband and a wife. But I'm really not talking about you guys. I'm talking about Christ and the church. I'm really not talking about an earthly husband and wife, even though you can use it in your wedding ceremonies if you want to, right? So Paul says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So we need to go back and read this again, looking for where he's talking about Christ and the church. And what you'll find is uh, he blatantly, he, occasionally it's clear he's talking about a couple, but he blatantly shifts it to talking about our relationship with God. So let's look at those two passages where he does that. In uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27, he says, Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. Who's he talking about now? Christ and the church, explicitly, not even metaphorically. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How did he give himself for us? The cross. It's pretty significant. That's, that's love. In fact, uh, Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrated his love and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were still the whore of Hosea, he came for us, right? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he should, might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So we need to see this passage as about our relationship with the church. And we need to emulate it as husbands, but it's primarily Paul's talking about us and Jesus, not about a marriage. Or he is, but he's talking about a heavenly marriage. And so we see here this intense, jealous love. I'll talk about the jealous part in a minute. There's this intense, jealous love. And then there's this radical commitment to the bride. Not only do I love this bride, but I'm going to cleanse this bride with the washing of the water by the word. I'm going to present this bride to myself as pure and spotless, partially by him dying on the cross and all of our sins being forgiven, but also by him refining us and preparing us to walk with him in partnership. Now, that partnership is an important word. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. This was perhaps a bad idea. Right? Didn't end well. He ended up uh, doing the whole harlot uh, Hosea thing. He ended up going after some of their gods. Here's the thing. You understand the difference between a wife and a concubine? How many concubines do we have here this morning? Any? Any concubines in the room? Why not? Who wants to be a concubine? Nobody. Nobody. You know what Jesus doesn't have? Concubines. Yeah, except do you understand that? I submit to you this. If your concept 
of your relationship with Jesus is not that you are a partner, a bridal partner with him. If your concept is that I'm available to Jesus whenever he calls on me, if he needs me, otherwise I'm just going to go about my business. That is the exact description of a concubine. I'm available if you need me. Use me how you want. Just use me, God. You understand? So from his perspective, he doesn't have concubines. From our perspective, I'm not sure. We need to make sure that we have our mindset right, that we aren't the concubine of Christ, that we are the bride of Christ, that we engage in this partnership that he is offering us. And in doing that, we're engaging in the bridal preparation, right? We're engaging in the being washed by the word so that we can be presented as a holy and spotless bride. That's part of the partnership of being his bride. Amen? Now, let's talk about the intense, jealous love for a second. Uh, God is a jealous God. God gets jealous in the same way any husband or wife gets jealous. He gets jealous if you go after someone else. Pretty simple. In fact, he says this in uh, Exodus 34, verse 14. He says, For you shall uh, worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What's he jealous of? Yeah. Of us going after other gods. Of our affection being somewhere else. Now, understand this. It's really easy to look at the Old Testament and look at Israel going astray and go, whoa, God was ticked off at Israel. That is a God who is expressing serious religious anger, right? Is that what's going on? You can look that way. In fact, I've heard people say that. God's God was mad in the Old Testament. It looks that way. It's not where it is. He's not expressing religious anger at them not following the rules. He's expressing intense love at them going after other lovers. You understand the difference? Everything God does, everything God does is out of love because God is love. All that Old Testament stuff was God trying to drag them back out of their Hosea-Gomer uh, relationship back into a relationship with him. That's all it was, right? And so he is a jealous God. James pulls this whole concept into the New Testament in James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where he says, adulterers and adulteresses. Now let's just stop there. Those words are reserved for a very special class of people. You have to be married to be an adulterer or an adulteress. And you have to be unfaithful to the one you're married to. That's the qualifications for using those words. So you understand he's talking in a marriage context here. James says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures saying in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? There's that jealous God thing. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying you're married to God, and he's going to get jealous if you start fiddling around with the world. Now, let's understand this. 
I'm not saying you can't enjoy the world, you can't enjoy God's creation, you can't go see a good Marvel movie, I don't care. Or, you know, Princess Bride. It's all good. Rachel is allowed to have friends who are men. I'm allowed to have friends who are women. Right? I mean, some of them are here in this room. I was going to say, I don't want to raise your hands because people are like, no. <laughs> I think he's my friend. Some of them are here in this room. Now, if Rachel has a friend named Billy Bob, I don't care. Unless Rachel starts going, I really enjoy Billy Bob. Billy Bob and I are going to dinner Wednesday night because I just like talking to him. In fact, I'm thinking about inviting Billy Bob on our vacation. He's just a lot of fun to hang out with. I like taking walks with him. Now, I wouldn't call that adultery, but I'm concerned about Billy Bob. You understand? Something is wrong here. I'm not, when he says don't be a friend of the world, he doesn't mean don't enjoy anything in the world. Uh, in fact, in verse 3, it's specifically talking about our pleasures. It says you, you ask and you ask and miss so you can spend it on your pleasures. He's saying uh, the world can't steal your affection from God. The world can't compete with God's affection in your life. Your primary pleasures need to be in him at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. His presence is fullness of joy. Well, yeah, but this is just more fun, right? These things in the world are just more fun. God, you understand. No, I don't understand. I'm a jealous God. It doesn't have any problem with you having fun in the world unless that becomes your source of primary pleasure and you'd rather do that than spend time with him. Uh, now, uh, now you're Billy Bob. Or the world is Billy Bob. And Jesus is wondering why he's on vacation with you, right? You understand what I'm saying? So this is what's going on. His jealous love means he is fixed on us, and he wants us fixed on him. He wants our primary affection to be engaged in him, right? And so this is what happens in marriage. And so we see in verses 25 through 27 this intense jealous love and this radical commitment to the marriage. Even if we are unfaithful, God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. He will continue to chase after you with his goodness, just like he made Hosea do with Gomer. He just kept chasing after her. He at one point purchased her back. Jesus purchased us back. Isn't that awesome? All right, let's go to the next section where he talks about this in Ephesians 5. Verses 30 through 32, where he says, We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, we often quote that at weddings also. But uh, he's talking about us being a member of Christ. And he says, this is the reason. The reason a man leaves his father and mother and joins his wife and become one flesh is because it's supposed to be a picture of our oneness with Christ. This is the picture that Jesus designed marriage to portray. And I love you says, this is a great mystery, but understand I'm talking about Christ in the church, not just about marriage. Now it is a great mystery. The fact that, uh, I don't know if you've noticed because the world may tell you different, but men and women are different. <laughs> Young women, when you get married, it's awesome. 
but you do have to live with a man. That's going to take some getting used to. Right, women? Yep, yep, see? Now, hear what Paul's saying here. This is a mystery. A man and a woman who are real different, not only are they going to move into the same house and live together, they're going to be one. What the heck does that look like? Well, we know what it looks like, don't we? It takes a little time to adjust. We become one. A man and a woman become one. Paul says, not, this isn't just a mystery. This is a great mystery. This is a big mystery. And Paul wasn't married. She goes, I don't even get this mystery. That one just flips me out. That a man and a woman can become one. Because I'm not even talking about that. Catch this. Think of how mysterious and crazy it is that a man and a woman, as different as they are, can literally become one. He goes, I'm talking about Christ in the church being one. Holy cow, how does, how does a God and a human become one? What the heck does that look like? That's the mystery that's flipping me out. That's what Paul's saying. You get this. This is a big deal. This is the part that we need to get. Paul is talking about radical unity, that we are members of his body, that we are one with God. That is a New Testament mystery that nobody in the Old Testament was expecting to happen. You understand? Now, let's look into this because if we get this, some of the rest of these verses are going to make sense. And we need to get this. This is the part where I'm getting into where I think the church in general, the church in the world, has missed how important this is. We tend to dwell so much on our personal relationship with Jesus that we miss the importance of the church's relationship with Jesus. So let's look at this. So what he's saying here is that there's this radical unity. There's this radical oneness that happens with God. Now, if we begin to look for that, we see that in scriptures. John 17, 21, Jesus is praying, and Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be one where? In us. Here he's saying, the only way, Father, they're going to be able to experience this oneness is if we let them into the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Behold, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's talking about unity, not quantity. The only way they can be one like this is if we let them into our oneness. If we actually let them into the family, if they can actually marry in, they can actually be a bride. That's the only way this is going to happen. And so we read in Ephesians 1.6 that we have been accepted in the beloved. Do you understand what an incredible mystery it is that we are accepted in the Godhead? There was just the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now we get to be there too. In him, one. That's worth pondering. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about literally being married to God. Now, how many brides does Jesus have? Think about it. Yeah, give everybody time to think. I think he has one bride. This has implications. Because 
I'm the bride of Christ, and you're the bride of Christ, and you're the bride of Christ, and you're the bride of Christ. And we get into our whole, well, I'm taking care of my relationship with Jesus. You get you your own, right? But I'm not sure that's how God's looking at it. This is the part we need to get. Now, we see the term bride used in Revelation 21, uh, in verses 2 and in verses 9. John the apostle is running around in heaven getting a tour with an angel. And the angel says, hey, John, come over here. I'm going to show you the bride of Christ. This is going to be good, right? Bet she's good looking. And what's he show her? A city. A city coming down from heaven. He says, this is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is a city. What's up with that? Well, where else do we see cities talked about? We see in 1 Peter 2, uh, where Peter says, we are all living stones being built together into a spiritual house, right? We see, we talked about this recently, Ephesians 2.22, where he says, um, we are being joined together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. How many brides does Jesus have? I think it's one. I think it's one. And this has implications. That we, not just you and you and you and you, that we are the bride of Christ. So let's get into the implications of this. Uh, I'm just hitting a lot of verses where bridal language is used. And another one is in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, where he just says there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. I personally believe there will be bacon and seafood, but... I don't know. He may defer to Israel. I don't know. Anyway, uh, he says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. Who wants to go? Awesome. All right. Now, Here's an interesting thing uh, that I note. Uh, we see the same result. We see a pure and spotless bride. We see a, a bride dressed in fine linens. Uh, so the bride's looking good. The bride's got her act together, right? And again, this isn't you getting your act together and you getting your act together and you getting your act together. I think we're talking about one bride of which you're a part. So here's the thing. It says here, his wife has made herself ready. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read in Ephesians 5 that he will sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he will present her to himself, a glorious church? Who's making who ready here? Is Jesus making you ready, or is the bride making you ready? Good. Both. Has to be both, because they're both in the Bible. Now, how does that work? Well, it's a partnership. And I think we see this partnership of Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19 in Ephesians 4. Now, it's not a partnership with you and you and you and you and you. It's a partnership with the bride, the one bride. We have to start thinking about the bride and not just I'm a bride, okay? So, it's a mindset that we have to get. So, in Ephesians 4... 11 through 16, we've looked at this passage a lot, so I'm not going to read it. Uh, you guys should be familiar with it. Uh, he says he's given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Their job is to help the saints do ministry. What's ministry? Well, in that rest of that passage, it's mostly described as each one doing their part, uh, being knit together by what each one does its share, edifying one another in love, speaking the truth in love, being built up together so that we all mature into the head who is Christ where all the fullness dwells, right? So both are going on. The fullness of God that dwells in the head through his word and through his affection is cleansing us, but only as we are joined together into a bride connected to one another and to the head, and we're speaking the truth in love. We're edifying. The church edifies itself. We're building each other up. Amen. Do you understand, uh, begin to see the mindset that we've lost that is so important to being the bride of Christ? Yes. We have to see the bride. And so, am I the bride of Christ? Yes, I am. But so are all of you. And I can't just be focused on my bridal relationship because Ephesians 4 says we're all in this together. We're knit together by what each joint supplies. And so as his bride, we receive intimacy, right? I can identify as the bride, and that means I have intimacy with Jesus. But I also am called to be a minister, and so are you. Whether just not just the fivefold ministry, they're equipping who for the work of ministry? Saints. So how many ministers are there? Everybody. Uh, your ministry might just be raising kids that love Jesus, but it's a ministry. You're ordained. Raise kids that love Jesus. Right? And so we're all called to ministry. And as his bride, we receive intimacy. As his ministers, we must want him to receive his bride. This is the mindset that I'm after. That it's not enough for me to go, Jesus, I love you. We have bridal intimacy. I have to go, oh, but Jesus, you love Caroline. You want her. I got I to gotta be invested in you wanting her. I got to be invested in her having bridal relationship with you. And you want Jeremiah. And I got to be invested in, you understand what I'm saying? If I really love Jesus, if I really want Jesus to have his bride, it's not just me. It's all of you guys. Amen. I have to want that if I'm a good bride. So we have to begin to think about this mindset of the bride being the church, and we're all invested in it. Paul thought like this. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, says, uh, he's, now he's gone to Corinth, he's preached and some of these Corinthians got saved, and he's very excited about that. And he says, hey, guys, you need to understand, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. There's that jealousy word again. He says, I'm jealous with you for a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You hear what he's saying now? Now that we understand this language, Paul gets it. Paul's going, hey, you got saved, but it wasn't really just salvation, it was a marriage. I picked you out, preached to you, you responded, I betrothed you to Jesus, and now I'm invested in presenting to you, presenting you to Jesus as a pure and spotless bride. I'm in this with you, Corinth. Help me help you, right? You understand what's going on? 
John the Baptist in John 3, in my opinion, uh, showed incredible revelation. He looks kind of below the radar. He doesn't do any flashy miracles. But uh, he was the first one to use, to call Jesus the Lamb of God. Uh, He understood some stuff. It, It took the rest of the apostles some time to understand. And he was the first one to use this bridal language. He immediately got right away what's going on. This is this is the bridal part. This is the part that Amos or that Hosea was talking about. He got this. He says in John 3, 29 through 30, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase. I must decrease. Now, let's make sure you understand this in light of what we just talked about, about the church. See, uh, we, most of us get that we can identify as the bride, but we can also identify as the best man, as the friend of the bridegroom. How progressive is that? You can be the bride or the best man, only in Jesus. Now, (laughs) yeah, Um, we need to get that we're all called to be both. We're not just called to be the bride. We're also called to be a friend of the bridegroom. This is another step up that we take when we engage in ministry. John says, no, I get it. I get that he gets the bride, and this is me being a friend of the bridegroom. I'm preparing the I get joy in preparing the bride. He has to increase. I must decrease. They don't need to be paying attention to me. They need to be paying attention to him. You understand what's going on? So friends of the bridegroom are committed to preparing the bride for him. That is what ministry is all about. That we see that he has a bride and we take part in preparing that bride for Jesus because Jesus wants that bride and we love Jesus and we want him to have that bride. He must increase, we must decrease. Let's make sure we understand this. I'm going to say some things now that are for mature believers. Uh, So if they go over your head, uh, it's okay. Uh, But we need to get this. The church needs to get this. Jesus gets the bride. Now, let me tell you a story to illustrate this. I was, I used to teach math at community Christian school as a side job when we had less money. And... uh, I was also making it a ministry because at Christian school, the kids are love Jesus. So I'm trying to have fun with the kids and get to know the kids. I'm doing that with math because math is awesome and they love math. Uh, right. No. Uh, yes, that's what I say. You, you and me and like three other people. All right. Uh, so they got me in this play that they're doing where I'm playing Jesus. And one of the guys in my math class were walking out afterwards. He goes, hey, you're, that was pretty good, Mr. Hawk. Yeah, he, goes, he goes, you're still not Jesus, though. And just laughs and walks up. But it, it hit me. I'm like, and I, I, I pause. I go, wow, there was something on that. What the heck was that? So I kind of wander off. It was like lunchtime. They're all in the playground. So I'm wandering off going, God, what was on that? And, and Jesus basically communicates this to me. He says, look, I appreciate that you're building a relationship with these kids, that you're trying to build a relationship with them and have fun with them, and I was. And I appreciate that you're enjoying it, and I was. He goes, don't forget, 
that the end isn't you having a relationship with them. The end is me having a relationship with them. You're supposed to put their hand in my hand. And I went, oh, yeah. He gets the bridegroom. They're not for me. You understand? So let's make sure we understand this. This is for fivefold ministry. This is for any ministry because we're all called to be ministers. The friends of the bridegroom are committed to preparing the bride for him. They don't use the bride. They don't use the bride. The bride is not for you to feel fulfilled in exercising your gifts. The scripture explicitly says your gifts are to serve the church. You understand? This takes maturity to develop this kind of mindset, doesn't it? Bride isn't for you. You don't profit from the bride. The bride is for Jesus. We don't compete with the bride. Well, the bride down the road is bigger than our bride. How do we get a bigger bride? It doesn't matter. It's all Jesus' bride. You don't compete. You don't compete with the bride. Do you understand what it means when we begin to get the mindset that the bride is all of us and the bride is his? And we don't get the bride. He gets the bride. Our joy is in seeing him get the bride. We also don't disparage his bride. Well, that other bride, I'm not even sure they're a bride. I mean, they believe different stuff than we believe. I don't know. But if Jesus thinks they're the bride, he might not like you talking about them like that. Come tell me you think Rachel's stupid and see how I take it. <laughs> right? And yet, uh, we often, as a church, I can tell, and when I say church, I don't mean here, I mean the church. I can tell we don't get this because the way we talk about his bride. And we need to get this. This is part of us maturing to the kind of bride that Jesus is coming back for. We have to do this. We have to begin to have a mindset where we see his bride as he sees his bride. Do, do we have immaturity in the bride? Absolutely. Uh, every Sunday. <laughs> right? But that's why we pray. That's why we build each other up. That's why we speak the truth in love. We aren't here to just correct the bride with a stick. We're here to encourage the bride to move closer to Jesus. Amen? So, to sum up, the bride is committed to Jesus, but the friends of the bridegroom are committed to his church, and we have to do both, and we have to be just as committed to his church as we are to him, because we're all called to be one in him. And I don't mean just the church in this room, I mean the church in the earth, and that's harder. Amen? So, the reason this is important is the bride being ready is a prerequisite to his return. Just simple logic. If he's returning for a pure and spotless bride, then we got to have a pure and spotless bride for him to return. The bride, when he comes, is going to somehow mature. We're going to somehow figure out that we're in this together and quit fighting, and quit competing, 
and quit disparaging one another and quit making it about us and making it about others and about him, somehow the church is going to learn that by the Spirit of God. And then he's going to come back. Now, he's coming back not just for the existing church. He's coming back for the future church, too. One of the things is, remember, this all started with Jesus talking about his bridal love for Jerusalem. And so he won't be coming back until Jerusalem also responds. We see this in Matthew 23, the same place where Jesus said, how long I've wanted to gather you. He says two verses later, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, I'm not coming back until Israel, until Jerusalem is also ready to accept my bridal invitation and marry me. And that is in part why he set watchmen on the wall to pray for Jerusalem. Because he's not coming back till his whole bride's ready, till that part of the bride's ready to marry him. And that we will talk about more next week. Amen? Amen? All right.